On October 17, 1781, a battered Lord Cornwallis surrendered his British troops at Yorktown to a victorious colonial army led by General George Washington and a slew of his top leaders such as Alexander Hamilton. The colonial forces were bolstered by thousands of Frenchmen, while the French Admiral Comte de Grasse, supported by Spanish colonies in the West Indies, was able to hold Chesapeake Bay and prevent British reinforcement. What led to the bizarre intercontinental circumstances of this? How had a weakened colonial army come to rely on the support of France and Spain? Find out all this and more on this week's episode of Revolutionary America. Hello, my name is Josh McBride, and on this episode of Revolutionary America, I'll be covering Chapter 8 in Alan Taylor's American Revolutions, the chapter titled Oceans. To understand this section, we must begin with a brief overview of what naval warfare was amongst the West in the late 18th century. The general strategy for traditional naval warfare was for both sides to line up beside each other and fire broadside at one another till one vessel was forced to surrender and was captured, sunk, or managed to escape. Battle tactics were communicated by a flagship, where the fleet admiral raised and lowered flags to direct his fleet. This often led to confusion and disarray in the moment. The navies of the time were focused around the ship of the line, a battleship of upwards of 60 cannons that required a crew of approximately 500 sailors. Frigates, a smaller and more agile type of warship, were preferred by colonists. These faster ships allowed colonists more maneuverability at a significantly cheaper cost. Naturally, a great deal of other ships of all types were used in the war with cheaper costs and for a litany of purposes, but none represent traditional combat of the time better than the ship of the line and the frigate. Along with frigates, privateers were the greatest mainstay of the Patriot Navy. Independently funded, privateers were quick on the water and were utilized by colonists to attack British merchant vessels. These Patriot tactics, however, were largely irrelevant by 1779. After the Patriot commander, John Paul Jones, won a costly victory on the coast of Yorkshire, the Continental Congress facing significant debt could not justify rebuilding a fleet. This would have been disastrous for the Patriots, if not for the entrance of France to the war in 1778. France brought to the war effort the second largest navy in the world, behind England, and their eternal grudge against England. Tensions were so deep, in fact, that the head of the Admiralty of England, the Earl of Sandwich, expected a French invasion force from across the English Channel and thus placed a great deal of his newly doubled fleet along the English Channel. To France, this was nothing but an opportunity to harass England where it really mattered, the West Indies. After a brief attempt at helping patriots in North America, French leader Comte d'Estaing led his ship south to the colonies of the West Indies. Far too weak and culturally outnumbered to feel the useful militia, these British colonies relied on naval protection, and with Britain distracted, protecting the English Channel, fighting patriots in North America, while still trying to retain their other colonial holdings, France moved in for the kill, and quickly captured the British colony of Dominica. This led to a great shift in British policy over the war. As for the rest of the war, the West Indies received more troops and support than did Clinton's own troops in America. 
In fact, a disgruntled Clinton may have had a moment of clairvoyance when he said, Of expeditions sent out everywhere, reinforcements to every place but this. Is it because America has become no object? If so, withdraw before you are disgraced. Clearly, the economic viability of the West Indies was paramount to the British Empire. The British were at a severe disadvantage, it seemed, as France and Spain, the second and third largest navies in the world, had both joined to support the Patriots. In addition to this, Taylor notes that, more pragmatic in tincturing their racism, the Spanish and French recognized that an armed and intermediary caste of free blacks tended to secure, rather than imperil, the slave system. Struggling to defend their islands, Britons paid a premium to cling to especially rigid racial prejudices. This allowed France and Spain to attempt a more offensive campaign in the West Indies, at least in the beginning, as they were able to field larger militias in their own colonial holdings. The Britons of the West Indies relied heavily on their mother country, both for trade and protection, and were by no means interested in the independence that their northern brethren fought for. To this end, the British West Indies awaited a man who could rescue their holdings from the French and Spanish, as well as secure their interests in the West Indies. At the behest of George III, Britain sent a great number of its fleet formally protecting the English Channel West and awarded command to Sir George Rodney in 1780. Rodney was a classic strongman, one whom the British hoped were to retake control of the West Indies and secure their most lucrative holdings. In May of 1780, Rodney tested his mettle against the French fleet near the French stronghold of Martinique, where he faced off against Comte Gretchen. The battle ended without a clear victor and left both sides evenly matched and struggling to assert dominance for the rest of 1780. This changed in December. The British had declared war on the Dutch in a bid to halt Dutch trade supplying the Patriots, French, and Spanish. Rodney wasted no time in attacking the trade port at the Dutch holding of St. Eustatius. Easily taking the island, Rodney was rewarded with a great deal of plunder. This, though, led to a commonality between himself and Clinton in New York, as once again a British leader would become reluctant to release the position of power and benefits they had won. Angering Britons whom he plundered along with enemies, Rodney left the Caribbean in order to defend himself in court back in England. This departure provided Comte de Grasse the opportunity to attack on his ambassador's warning, who said, It is you alone who can deliver the invaded states from the crisis which is so alarming that for their existence it is necessary to you to do all you can. The Spanish in Cuba provided supplies and payment to de Grasse, while also assuming protection of Spanish and French colonial holdings in the Caribbean. The stage had been set and Yorktown loomed on the horizon. I'd like to take a brief moment here just to talk a little more freely, uh, analyze some of the things that have been talked about thus far, because reading history is one thing, but understanding and analyzing it is another, and obviously the point of the class. I think that there's a lot of interesting things that have come up. The fact that the colonists had almost no navy and relied so heavily on the French and Spanish for aid and protection, protection in their navies as, uh, shows how important it was for the colonists to secure the allyship of the French and the Spanish. 
which obviously would have been impossible without some key victories by George Washington. So it really shows how much this all fits together. I think along with that, another very interesting thing that this chapter so far has done a great job illustrating is just how valuable the West Indies were, as well as framing this as a far more global conflict than we tend to think of it. Uh, The fact that Britain was so willing to divert troops from North America in order to depress in order to protect their holdings in the West Indies shows this in a much more universal light than we as Americans tend to think of it. Uh, This is depicted on a map on page 298 of Taylor's book, where it shows the location of battles throughout the world and describes it as a world war taking place between 1775 and 1783. The further battles will be covered later on in the podcast as they're covered later in the chapter but I think this is a very important departure. It shows Britain begin to turn away from wanting to retake the colonies in North America as their primary goal. And with the introduction of France and Spain, it becomes more a war in the mind of the British people of maintaining their colonial dominance and holdings worldwide. This is seen even more so after the Battle of Yorktown, but I think it's interesting to note that these shifts were beginning to occur even before that, with troops being diverted to the West Indies in order to protect British interests there. So, on that note, let us continue on with the Battle of Yorktown. To cover the Battle of Yorktown in great detail could be a series in and of itself, and as war tactics are of no particular interest to me, we will be focusing on only the most important aspects. The fighting began as de Grasse surrounded Chesapeake Bay, trapping Cornwallis and his men. The British failed to break through French lines and withdrew to New York. Washington had heard of de Grasse's movements and, after leaving a diversion behind to keep Clinton's forces in New York, began his long march south. Taylor makes it clear that this was a gamble, as any number of things could have gone wrong. But Washington was desperate. And despite the risk, this was one of the greatest moments of coordinated international movement between allies in the whole of the American Revolution. The British, on the other hand, struggled to communicate even amongst themselves. Clinton and Cornwallis bickered in such a way that Taylor says lead to British troops in Virginia being paralyzed there. Thousands of French soldiers bolstered Patriot troops and allowed a siege to be carried out. The Patriots and French continued to make advancements closer to the British, while Washington remarked that Cornwallis was passive beyond conception. Cornwallis was bombarded into surrendering on October 17, 1781. This would be the greatest boon for the Patriot cause and the greatest curse on the British in the North American front. Cornwallis not only surrendered a quarter of all troops in North America, but also alienated all Loyalist support for the Empire by allowing captured Loyalists to be taken without the protection of prisoners of war. The war in the U.S. was ending by 1781, and would have likely come about no matter what. That it was a victory for the Patriots was due in large part to good fortune and strong allies. In fact, it was Alexander Hamilton who notes, If we are to be saved, France and Spain must save us. Taylor acknowledged this point as valid when he adds, 
that it was thanks to those two powers desperate patriots got the crucial help that saved their cause and won the war at Yorktown. But how did these formerly desperate patriots treat their allies of France and Spain as they began negotiating with Britain? Formidable allies against Britain, America, France, and Spain all were still entirely independent and sought separate goals in their peace talks with Britain. The United States were primarily interested in land acquisition and hoped to gain not only independence, a requirement they would not budge on, but also territory and greater economic security. France was hoping to shift a fledgling America away from British ties and onto closer and more dependent relations with itself. In fact, Virginis even wanted British troops to remain in Canada to pressure America into maintaining strong ties with their French allies. Spain sought what Taylor calls a buffer zone away from America and its new and terrifying Republican ideals. Lord Shelburne, the British representative, attempted to deal with the Americans alone by offering legislative autonomy and requiring submission to the crown only in matters of international affairs. Naturally, This hope was far from realistic after years of war for independence. The American hardline on independence prompted Shelburne to, as quoted by Taylor, set aside his dream of reunion, as Shelburne became most anxious if it is to be given up that it should be done decidedly so as to avoid all future risk of enmity. The deal Shelburne provided offered independence and a great deal of highly valued territories to the Americans, who accepted the peace outside of France or Spain. Shelburne hoped to center American trade and economic dependence back on Britain through this deal, and it was clear that all major powers believed it necessary to control the young America. Thus, peace talks were decided in America, with Spain and France following soon, soon thereafter for a rather meaningless exchange of territories and holdings. So, what was the outcome of the war? Who were the victors, and what did they win? Winner is perhaps a hard term to define in the context of the American Revolution. Without a doubt, the Patriots got what they wanted, an independent America free from the control of England. But England is not necessarily a loser. I mean... Obviously, they certainly lost the 13 colonies they held in North America, but at what cost? Popular opinion in England had swayed during the war to characterize the patriots and the colonists as ingrates who were more trouble than they were worth. When the war became global, as France and Spain entered, and eventually the Dutch, Britain was able to secure far more lucrative holdings throughout the world From India to the West Indies, Britain was now more than ever all across the world. And rather than creating a situation where Britain lost their colonies in North America and were subjugated under a dominant France, France and Spain came out of this war with little to show for it rather than except for their debts and lost lives. Britain, on the other hand, suffered defeat, but also had many gains setting them up to be the superpower that they would continue to be throughout the 19th century. At the end of the day, what we see through Chapter 8, Oceans, of Alan Taylor's American Revolutions, is that the colonists were 
largely dependent and saved by their French and Spanish allies, particularly in the battles at sea, which played a crucial factor in determining the outcome of the American Revolution. I'd like to end this podcast today with a few questions for the class and anyone else who might happen to be listening. Uh, Some are rather innocuous. Hopefully some are able to dig into issues a little deeper. So, who were the real winners and losers of the Revolutionary War? How did the peace agreement that ended the war shape Western politics in the coming years? Broadly speaking, why is this book on the American Revolution willing to go so far beyond American borders to characterize global fighting? And could this war be characterized as a world war? Finally, with the peace agreements they reached, how might this have changed American outlook at themselves and at the European powers? Thank you all for joining me on this podcast. I've been Josh McBride. If at any point during this podcast you heard my cat meowing in the background, I hope you enjoyed his input. Uh, Join us next week on American Revolutions as we continue to review the Taylor book and the implications it has for the American story. Thank you, and goodbye. Goodbye.